All right, listen, we have a lot of good stuff to dig into this morning. Uh, and so I, I just really want to jump right into it. Uh, and so let me begin with this. Uh, I, as many of you know, I spent 15 years in corporate finance before going to seminary, before becoming a pastor. And so my role was to oversee the audit group for a pharmaceutical that was headquartered in New Jersey. And one of the major parts of my job was to assess and manage risk, was to figure out what could go wrong and then to determine ways to reduce or lessen that risk, to, to try to think about everything we could do to avoid bad things from happening. And so one of the risks that we monitored that we were concerned about is what would happen if all members of senior management suddenly died? Now, that's a morbid thought, but it was a real risk. What, what would we do? Who would run the company? And one of the things that we came up with in order to deal with that is we decided that there should never be a time when all members of senior management travel together. So they couldn't be on the same flight, they couldn't be on the same plane. It makes sense, right? Here's a scenario where something could go bad and we try to figure out a way to, to try to avoid that bad thing from happening. Now, I really liked my job. In fact, I think I was pretty good at my job because I really like to manage risk. And quite often, that's how I approach my own life. I try to manage risk. I plan, I strategize, I do my research to make sure that I can avoid bad things from happening. I do everything I can to make sure life works out the way that I want. And over the past few weeks, probably months, I've been dealing with a lot, I've been struggling with a lot of fear and anxiety over the unknown, over my future, over my present. There's just been a lot of change in my life, a lot that I'm not sure of, a lot that's unstable, unpredictable, uncomfortable. And things are, are changing. Circumstances are changing. Relationships are changing, and that's scary for me. I'm not exactly sure how it's all going to play out. And so my default is to do what I think I'm good at. And so I lay awake at 2 or 3 a.m. and I plan and I strategize and I try to think of all the ways I can make life work out the way that I want. I act like life's a chess game, that if I just make all the right moves, then I can get what I want. That if I just think two steps ahead of everyone else, I can win. And I really like winning. I plan and I consider all my options and if I do it well, then I can make things go the way I'd like. I don't think I'm the only one. I think we all do that. We plan and we strategize and we try to make sure we do everything we can so that life works out the way that we want, so that we can avoid bad things from happening. The only problem is Life just doesn't work that way. We can do all the planning, all the strategizing, and still terrible things can, can happen. Things can go really wrong. And so it feels like our world is spinning out of control. We can't even get a handle on it. And so that leads to even greater fear and even greater anxiety. So what do we do? How do we deal with our fears and anxieties over the future, our concerns over the present? How are we to live? Well, James has something to say about that. You're not surprised, right? James has had a lot to say. 
And, and what James is doing is he assumes that we understand the gospel. He wants to show us what our lives will look like if we actually believe the gospel. And this morning, I want to take a look at this passage, James 4.13 through chapter 5, verse 6. And here's what James wants to show us. A gospel-driven life is a life of humble submission to Jesus. A gospel-driven life is a life of humble submission to Jesus. And so what I want to do is walk through this passage together, and I want to share with you three observations. The lie we so easily believe, the truth we must recognize, and the result of believing the lie. The lie, the truth, and the result. See where we're going? All right, James 4.13, let's go. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James begins by saying, now listen, you. Now that's an ancient Jewish way of of giving a serious rebuke. James is using strong language here. He's reprimanding his readers for something that they're doing. Here's how the message translation puts it. And now I have a word for you who brashly announced today at the latest tomorrow, we're off to such and such a city for the year. We're going to start a business and make a lot of money. You don't know the first thing about tomorrow. You're nothing but a wisp of fog catching a brief bit of sun before disappearing. What James is condemning is the lie we so easily believe, the illusion of control. He gives this example of people who are self-confident and arrogant in their planning. They decide where they will go, when they will go, and how long they will stay there. And they're confident of the result. They will make money. James is not saying that we shouldn't plan or, or that we shouldn't try to make a profit. He's not arguing against capitalism or having a 401k. He's trying to get to what's going on in our hearts. Often, our heart posture, whether we are aware of it or not, is I can control my future. I can plan. I can strategize. I can control my future. I can research, and I can control my destiny. See, what happens is we so desperately desire control as a way to manage our fear. We want to control our lives, our story. We want to make sure that nothing bad happens to us. So we believe the lie, the illusion of control. And we use it as a coping mechanism, as a way of dealing with our fears and anxieties. If I can just get all the pieces of my life in place, then I won't be afraid. Then I won't be anxious. Then finally I can be at peace. I can be happy. I just need to make sure that I do all the things so that my life works out exactly the way that I want. Does that resonate with anyone? That resonates with me. Much of my childhood was filled with trauma and fear. I just never knew what was going to happen. I never felt safe. I never felt secure. And so I spent so much of my life being afraid. And so from a very young age, I tried to manage my fear. And the way I learned to manage my fear was to believe in the illusion of control. That if I just did all the right things, if I worked hard, I could get anything I wanted. I could make life turn out the way that I desired. I mean, this is the American dream, isn't it? Work hard and you can be whatever you want. 
But if we think about it, we all know that's not how life works. It takes much more than just hard work to be successful. There are so many other factors at play that your family of origin, where you grew up, all of that affects your success. If you grow up in poverty in the slums of Calcutta, India, the odds are stacked against you that you will be successful. Control is an illusion. You're not smart enough, you're not strong enough, you're not resourceful enough to control your life. The lie we so easily believe is the illusion of control. But here's the truth we must recognize. Back to verse 14. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Here's the first truth. You lack knowledge. James says you don't even know. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know what today will bring. So after this message, I'm going to go and get something to eat. I'm going to go to a couple meetings. I'm going to try to take a nap, but I have FOMO, so I probably won't be able to do that. I'll grab some dinner. I'll come back here and do this all over again tonight. And then I'm going to go home and go to bed. That's my plan. But you know what? There's a thousand things that can happen that can prevent any of that from taking place. I don't know what will happen. I'm not omniscient. I don't know everything. Only God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's limitless in his knowledge. And his knowledge is not only comprehensive, meaning he knows all things, but it's also personal and active. He knows everything about the universe. He knows everything about everything. And he knows everything about you. Everything about me. In Psalm 139, David says he knows when we sit down and when we get up. He is familiar with all our ways. He knows the intimate details about us, our words, our thoughts, our actions. It's as if he scoured every detail of our lives and he knows it completely. Now I want you to stop for a moment and I want you to consider God's knowledge and then I want you to consider your knowledge. So uh, let's say I invited you all over to my house, okay? You're all coming over to my house and imagine with me that I've got this amazing pool in my backyard. We're imagining because it's not real. It's incredible, okay? Like beautiful landscaping, in-ground, extensive pool. And I tell you, this pool of water represents God's knowledge. And then I give each of you an eyedropper. And I say, now suck out of this pool the amount of water that represents your knowledge. This pool represents God's knowledge. Now you show me your knowledge. What would that look like? Not much, right? It wouldn't even be a drop. We can't compare. We don't make it on the map. God knows it all. He, he knows everything there is to know. Now, I know some stuff. I know some stuff about business and finance. I know a little bit about the Bible and theology. But I take all my knowledge, and I compare it to God's, and I don't stand a chance. So when things are happening in our lives that don't make sense to us, We can trust in the all-knowingness of God because we know that he knows everything. And we don't. So the first truth is we lack knowledge. The second truth is we lack power. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James is showing us the fragility and brevity of human life. You are a mist. I want you to think of a really cold day. You don't have to stretch that far in your imagination, right? Today's pretty cold. 
Even for Texas, this is cold. So you woke up this morning, let's say you went outside, and you start talking, what happens? You start to see your breath, right? And like that, it's gone. It vanishes. James says, that's what your life is like. That's what my life is like. James is saying, you are powerless. You are a mist. But God is all powerful. He's omnipotent. He is the creator, God, the one who holds all things together. By the word of his mouth, creation responds to him. The wind and waves obey him. He is all powerful. The first truth is we lack knowledge. The second truth is we lack power. Here's the third truth. God is in control. Verse 15 says this, instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. See, it's not enough to recognize that we lack knowledge and power. We must also recognize that God is in control, that he's sovereign. Our lives are in the hands of God. We can trust in a sovereign God because not only is he in control, but his sovereignty means that he makes the right decisions for us. Because God is all-knowing, all-powerful, he's sovereign, and he will do good to us. Well, how do we know God is good? Because we look to the cross. We look to the cross. Jesus came to redeem, rescue, and to save us. The cross is evidence that regardless of the circumstances of our lives, we can look to an all-knowing, all-powerful God who's sovereign and in control, and we can trust him. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Now we all boast in something. We boast in what gives us confidence in life, what what makes us feel secure and significant. And we often boast in something besides God. We think if I can have this thing or, or this relationship or if I do this or that, then I can be happy. If I get married, if I lose the weight, if I have kids, if, if I have the right job, if I, if I land the corner office or, or the house in the wealthy neighborhood, then whatever it is that I want so badly, to, then I'll be happy. We boast in that thing. And boasting itself is actually not wrong. It's actually quite biblical if we're boasting in the right thing, if we're placing our confidence in the right thing. Jeremiah writes this, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight declares the Lord. So what are you boasting in? Is your boasting in the Lord? Is he the one that you place your confidence in? Or are you boasting, are you placing your confidence in other things or in your own ability to control your life? To do this is arrogance. That's what James says. Are you trying to write your own story or are you allowing Jesus, the author of life, to write the story for you? And then he says this in verse 17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. James is saying, you know the right thing to do. Stop believing the lie, recognize the truth and now live like it. Now we looked at the lie that we so easily believe, the illusion of control. We we looked at the truth we must recognize. We lack knowledge, we lack power, but God is in control. And now James goes on to show us 
what the result is of believing the lie. If we believe the lie, if we live under the illusion of control, that we're in control of our lives, of our destiny, then it will lead to the kind of people that you see in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5. And here's how James describes these people. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your moths have eaten your clothes. Your, your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. What James is saying is these people selfishly hoard wealth. They use their wealth for their own selfish purposes. And he has some strong words for them. Verse four, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. They cheat, they defraud people and God is completely aware of their sin. Their cries, the cries of the oppressed have reached his ears and he will act on their behalf. Verse five, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. They are self-indulgent. They care only for themselves. Their world revolves around them and their wants, their desires. They selfishly, they arrogantly pile up wealth for themselves and they wastefully spend it on their own pleasures. And there is a day coming, James says, when God will judge them for that. And then he ends with this. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. James is saying that, that these people oppress the righteous and when these rich people cheat the poor of fair wages, then they cause them to starve to death. They are responsible for their murder. Now James isn't condemning the rich. There's nothing wrong with being rich. It's about how you use your money because how you spend your money reveals the motivations and the posture of your heart. John Mark Homer, pastor and author, describes two ways to view life. One way says that the world was created as an act of love by a generous God. He is good, he's a good and loving father who wants only what's best for us. And as his children, as his daughters, we enjoy his love and his care, his generosity. All of life is a gift from this good father. There's plenty to go around because he's a generous provider. We can trust God as our father and his vision of life defined by abundance. This is the abundant life that Jesus talked about. That's one way to view life. The other way to view life is to believe the father of lies that Jody talked to us about a few weeks ago. We have an enemy. We have an adversary who whispers lies to us. He's done it from the very beginning of time. It's what he did to Eve in the garden. It's what he whispers to us today. And he says that God is not who he says he is. You can't trust God. You can't trust his vision of abundance. You need to take life into your own hands. You need to take control of your life. Fight for what is yours. Plan, scheme, manipulate, do whatever you have to do to make sure life works out the way that you want. Make sure nothing bad happens to you because God's not going to take care of you. This is a vision of life defined by scarcity. And James says, when you live under the lie, the illusion of control, you see only scarcity. Rather than believing that life is a gift from a generous provider, we believe life is a scarce resource that we must fight to control so that we get what we want, so that we get what we think we deserve. If you believe life is a gift and you have a vision of life defined by abundance, 
then you will be radically generous with your money because you have a generous father who gives graciously and lavishly. But if you believe you have to control your life, you have to make things work out for you. If you believe it's all up to you and you just need to make all the right moves so that you get what you want, you will have a vision of life defined by scarcity. And you will act like the people James describes in these verses. So the question for us this morning is, how are we living? How are we living? Are are you living under the illusion of control? Where you have to plan, you have to strategize, you have to make sure that that everything works out exactly the way you want. Friends, we must stop believing the lie. We live in a world we cannot control. We live in Texas. We don't even know what the weather is going to be in the next hour. How can we control our lives? (laughs) The truth is, we lack knowledge, but God is all-knowing. We lack power, but God is all-powerful. We're not in control of our lives, but God is. And he's sovereign, and he's good, and he is working all things out for our good. Do you have a vision of life defined by abundance where you're trusting in a good and generous, gracious father who provides for your every need? If you have that kind of vision of life, a vision of life defined by abundance, you will be radically generous with your resources. Or, or do you have a vision of life defined by scarcity? where it's all up to you. You have to hustle. You have to work to make sure that life works out exactly the way you want. If you have that kind of vision, if you're living with that kind of vision of life defined by scarcity, you will hoard your wealth, you will be selfish and self-indulgent because everything is up to you. Now, I think we would all agree that we're not in control of our lives. And I think we all want to have a vision of life defined by abundance. I think we all want that. But how do, we, how do we do that? Well, let me offer you a simple practice that I've been doing. See, I think the reason we so desperately desire control is because we're trying to manage our fear. We use control as a coping mechanism to deal with our fears and anxieties. If, if I could just control my future, then I will no longer be afraid. And so the first step is to acknowledge your fears and anxiety, to bring it to Jesus. And in this season of uncertainty, this is what I have to do almost every morning right now. It's the first thing I do in my time with Jesus. I begin journaling and I just write out, God, here's what I'm afraid of. Here's what I'm anxious about. And I bring that to Jesus. Because my natural MO is to to try to ignore my fears and anxieties, to try to stuff them deep down inside of me, but that never works. It always ends up coming out and it inflicts so much damage on me and the people I love around me. And so I'm learning to acknowledge my fear, to name my fear and anxieties and to bring it to Jesus. Here's the second step. To give up your need for control. To give up your need for control. So what I do is I acknowledge, I name my fears and anxieties, I bring it to Jesus and then I just say, God, I give up my need for control. I want to trust in you. I want to submit myself to you. I want to give myself to you. 
and I remind myself of who he is. I remind myself of truth, that he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, that he's in control, that he's a good, generous, gracious father who loves me extravagantly, who loves me recklessly, who is always working for my good. You see, I, I think Jesus is always trying to take us into these deeper places of trust, and one of the most significant ways we can do that is by giving up our need for control giving up our desire and need to to manage and to manipulate and to scheme and plan to make sure things work out the way we want. We don't have to live like that. We can trust God. We could submit ourselves to God. Now, I have to be quite honest with you. The circumstances of my life have not changed. There's still so much I'm uncertain of, so much that feels unstable, so much I'm unsure of. But what has changed is I'm giving up my need for control and I'm moving into this deeper place of trust with Jesus where I'm learning to to walk in moment by moment dependence on him. And it's not just this one-time thing. It's something I have to do over and over again because every time those fears and anxieties begin bubbling up, begin rising up, I gotta do it all over again. And I gotta acknowledge and name my fear and anxiety and then I've gotta give up my need for control. And it's one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. But it's also one of the best things. And it's so, so worth it. I love how James Bryan Smith puts it. Here's what he says. I am the one in whom Christ dwells and delights. I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble and neither am I. I am the one whom Christ dwells and delights. I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble, and neither am I. Friends, we're not in control of our lives, but we don't have to be. We have a God who dwells and delights in us. We are significant, we are safe, we are secure because of Jesus. A gospel-driven life is a life of humble submission to Jesus. And so I want to give you a few minutes now to do this practice. I believe Jesus is inviting us into a deeper place of trust. And so you've got some paper on your tables. If you find it helpful to journal, please go ahead and do that. But this really is your time. And so you do this in whatever way works best for you. And I'd invite you to, take this, to, to practice these two steps. First, acknowledge Name your fear and anxiety. What is it that's going on in your life right now that is causing you fear, that's making you afraid or anxious? Acknowledge that. And maybe it's not even something that's actually happening. Maybe it's just something you're worried about. It's a what if. Name that fear. Acknowledge that anxiety and bring it to Jesus. And then here's a second step. Give up your need for control. And if I could offer you a simple prayer, it would be this. Just say, God, here's my fear, here's my anxiety, and I give up my need for control. I want to trust you. I'm going to submit myself to you. Remind yourself of the truth of who your God is, that he's all-knowing, all-powerful, that he's a good and gracious God who provides for all your needs. I'm going to give you a few minutes just to do that, to talk to God. This is between you and God. It's your time, and then I'll close us in prayer. Well, Father, we bring you our fears and anxieties. We give up our need for control. 
We thank you that you are all-knowing, all-powerful, and that you are in control, that you are a generous, good, faithful Father. You give us exactly what we need when we need it. And God, I pray that you would help us to live with the vision of life defined by abundance as you invite us into deeper places of trust. So help us to do that. Help our unbelief. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.